You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, I'm uh, Nicholas Green, I'm a retired professor of English here in Trinity and it's my job tonight to introduce Fintan O'Toole. But that always raises a question as to which Fintan O'Toole I should introduce. Uh, should I begin properly with uh, Fintan O'Toole, the academic, uh, who is Lindber- Leonard Milberg, uh, lecturer in Irish letters in Princeton uh, University, uh, where he teaches normally uh, in the spring from January till June. Uh, but this year he is Parnell Fellow at Magdalen College, uh, at Cambridge, uh, where he is starting on the mammoth task of writing the authorised biography of Seamus Heaney. Best of luck to him on that. Um, or there is uh, Fintan O'Toole, the drama critic. Uh, he was uh, the theatre reviewer for the Irish Times uh, for many years, uh, for the New York Daily News at one point. Uh, he took some time out uh, to be a literary advisor to the Abbey Theatre. Um, and he's written brilliant books on Richard Brinsley Sheridan, on Tom Murphy, and most recently on Bernard Shaw, ignoring his own advice, his own maxim, that the two things you mustn't do are invade Russia or write a book about Bernard Shaw. Uh, we're looking forward to him invading Russia any day now. Uh, perhaps, I suppose, uh, more familiar to many of us who are regular readers of the Irish Times, uh, twice a week for the column there. Um, he is, of course, a very well-known uh, public commentator on culture and politics. Uh, I was amazed to discover he's apparently been writing Irish Times columns since 1988. Um, uh, uh, he has, uh, by following closely current affairs, he's produced a number of major important books including uh, my favourite title of his, perhaps, uh, Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, uh, The Politics of Irish Beef. He must be the only person in the globe who at one point knew all the details of the web of scams and chicanery uh, by which Irish beef exports were managed in this, in this country. Um, then there was the Ship of Fools, um, chronicling how stupidity sank the Celtic tiger. Uh, and most recently, uh, his first book on Brexit, he was just telling me there's a second on the way. Uh, um, maybe maybe you'll discover he can write a third when they cancel the whole thing, just <laughs> decide it was a bad idea. Uh, um, uh, his book, Heroic uh, Failure, uh, The Politics of, of, of Pain, which is uh, sold extremely well for him. Uh, he's won major awards uh, for uh, his, his work, his writing, um, the coveted Orwell Prize uh, and the European Press Prize in, in, in the same year. Uh, it is because there is actually only one Fintan O'Toole, in spite of what I've been saying, uh, because he's achieved distinction in so many of these different fields, and because he is that very rare beast, the highly respected public intellectual, rare beast at least in Ireland, uh, that Trinity College Dublin is going to be honouring him uh, with an honorary degree, a salute to that achievement on Friday. 
And because he has spent so much of his time thinking about both politics and literature, uh, we thought it would be very good tonight to hear for his reflections on the intersection between those two, whether they're compatible or incompatible. Anyway, I'm hugely looking forward to hearing Fintan O'Toole on literature and politics. Thank you. Um, good evening, friends. Uh, thank you very much for being here. And uh, I mean, thanks so much to, to Trinity for, for um, hosting me and for um, uh, their lapse of judgment in, in, uh, in, in the honour, uh, which will be coming on Friday, which of course means a huge amount to me. Um, uh, 1988, which um, Nikki mentioned, you know, is, is a long time. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's slightly disturbing to, to reach the point of being a, a sort of national treasure, a grand old man. You know, have, have, my job is to sort of provoke people and make them angry. It's a sort of, um, you don't know if they're, they're compatible roles anymore. Uh, but it, it, is, it is lovely. Um, I just thought I would try to reflect for, for three or four hours, maybe, about, about, um, know, about 40 minutes, just on because as as he said, my, my career has been really one that's sort of refused to recognise the distinction in a way between the political and and, and the literary, um, the the artistic world and and the world of public affairs have always seemed to me to be completely intertwined, and maybe that's just uh, a, a solipsistic way of of, of um, uh, reflecting the fact that I'm interested in both. And uh, I've always tried to kind of work somehow between those two areas. Um, so I, I just thought it would be worth trying to reflect a little bit on, on what has struck me about uh, the, the interpenetration of, of writing and politics um, over the years that I've been writing about them. Um, I suppose, just to explain where, where I, I came from um, in relation to all of this was, was um, in going to the theatre. So I, I would say the first public events that I went to, other than the Catholic Mass, uh, was, were plays. And um, it only subsequently did I understand that I stopped going to Mass and started going to the theatre at the same time, you know, that the one substituted for the other in, in, in many ways. Um, so when I was about 13, I, I started going to, to, to plays with my father. Um, and the first three plays I saw were, were, were by Shakespeare, uh, I bet, by Bernard Shaw, a um, play that's almost never done anymore, um, called Fanny's First Play, which is actually a very interesting play, but not, not one of his best-known works. Um, I've never seen it since. Um, and, uh, and Sean Casey's The Plow of the Stars. Um, so if you put Shakespeare, um, Shaw and O'Casey together, um, it's not accidental that you might think that, uh, you know, certainly as far as theatre was concerned, that uh, the matter of politics, the matter of public life, the matter of how communities reflect on themselves, the matter of how ideas about power and tyranny and gender and money um, and, and class and violence, you know, uh, are really quite central to, to, to what you were seeing in Irish theatre at that time. Um, 
And this perhaps is a particular perspective, right? But but it's impossible to think about Irish theatre, particularly modern Irish theatre in the 20th century, without being aware all the time of its very, very profound interrelationship with, um, not just with politics in an abstract sense, but with the very foundation of the state, you know. The, the very idea of having an Irish state, of it, of it being a separate space, um, ha- has to be forged imaginatively before it can be created politically. And one of the ways in which it's forged imaginatively is, is absolutely on the stage. You know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a dramatic process, which, uh, you know, I won't, I don't need to bore you about, but it's obvious in a way, isn't it, when you think about it even an event like the 1916 Rising here in the city, and how um, Roy, Roy Foster's recent brilliant book on, on, on the generation of people, the revolutionary generation, is fascinating, just showing how many of them were involved in the theatre, in putting on plays, in writing plays, uh, in, in, in um, you know, acting, in designing, in, in, in you know, using theatre as a way, not just of discovering what they thought or how they could behave in public, but actually discovering who they were themselves. I mean, theatre was an incredibly important part of their lives. Um, and it's not accidental that something like the 1916 Rising is, in a way, a kind of scripted drama. You know, it's, it's meant to have an imaginative effect um, rather than a directly military one. I mean, they know by the time they do it that um, they don't have any chance of, of, of winning a kind of literal victory the victory they can imagine is an imaginative one. And even that gesture, even that idea, which is, is uh, not one that would have been taken for granted at the time, uh, is, is rooted very much in a pre-existing Irish tradition uh, of understanding writing and understanding theatre as the, the arena in which the nation sort of makes itself up. Um, and, uh, I mean, Nick, Nicky is as uh, deeply aware of this as, as I am, maybe even more so, but we were also fortunate. Uh, so when I started to write about theatre in the very beginning of the 1980s, around 1979, 1980, um, you know, you take things for granted, but we were, we were, in fact, retrospectively, in an extraordinary period in which you had probably at their height, a generation of writers for the theatre who um, were very actively engaged and had been very actively engaged since about 1958-59 in uh, staging for the nation its, its, its internal dramas. I mean, what, you know, what, what Brian Friel and Tom Murphy and John B. Keane and Hugh Leonard, that whole generation were, were doing, actually very consciously was saying, you, you, there's an image of this society, there's, there's an official way it thinks about itself, um, and that's maintained in one way, but in the theatre we're going to show you the underlying conflicts. We're, we're going to show you how, not in an abstract sense, but in people's lives, ideas about what it is to be in this society uh, are, are being played out. These, these very direct, visceral conflicts of family, of gender, of, of exile, um, of economics, of social class, 
um, were all being played out in front of us in, in, in the most extraordinary ways. And by the 1980s, I suppose, when, when, when I started writing about it, um, we were in a period in which great writers, and they were great writers, I mean, we were astonishingly fortunate to have, I mean, great playwrights are very rare, actually, there's not very many of them, and we had a number of them functioning at the same time here. And people like Tom Murphy and Brian Friel by the 1980s were, I think, had reached a point where they were both functioning at incredibly high levels in terms of the form of theatre. So they were pushing the form, they were pushing the language, they were, they were really experimenting with new ways of, 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 of structuring things on stage and of communicating with an audience. So they were functioning in a way as, as uh, you would expect artists at the height of their powers to be, which is they're, they're thinking very much also internally about what is this form? How does it work? How do I do it? What happens if I push it in another direction? They were doing all of that um, in, in plays like Faith Healer, for example, or, or the Gilles concert. And at the same time, you looked at those plays and you also knew that they were at some fundamental level, very, very profoundly connected to the present, to, to what was going on in the society, to the way the society was thinking about itself. Um, so I suppose this was the other privilege that uh, would have come from that experience of theatre. So not only did you have to sense that it was very profoundly connected to an idea of the nation, you also had an idea that there was not any inherent contradiction between writers being concerned about form and about trying to push the form as far as they possibly could and retaining a very powerful and immediate connection with the society that they were trying to represent and that they were trying to influence. And I think they were trying to influence the society. They were, they were trying to communicate at a very uh, direct level to their audiences. That, that those were the ambitions that existed there. So, I suppose that's, that was the kind of formative um, experiences for me in, in terms of thinking about all of these things. And um, coming from that, I suppose there's, there's, there's a number of things that you, you begin to try to figure out, I think. Um, the, uh, the, the Irish experience is one in which we have, for the reasons I've been talking about, a pretty positive story about the role that writing plays in creating the political community. Uh, uh, you, know, you can argue about Yeats's politics or you can argue about O'Casey's politics or you know, whatever, but you can't really argue that those politics did not um, help to give an immediacy and a shape to people's ideas of, of, of what was this new state, what was this new community being, being uh, created. Um, so the, the Irish experience of that is, 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 is largely a positive one. Uh, it's, it's largely one in which, of course, um, uh, the energy that was unleashed by this connection between politics and, 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 and drama, particularly, but you could extend it, of course, into, into the novel, into the work of Ethan O'Brien, for example, in, in, in the early 1960s, into the work of John McGahern, and, and so on and so forth. All that energy was uh, an energy which was, was very much 
directed towards an idea of the necessity to work out in storytelling of different forms what the reality of the society might be. Um, and therefore, because this was a society that had a very uh, fixed official view of itself, that energy was very largely kind of countercultural energy. So, of course, you had censorship, which, which still continued, you know, affected somebody like Ed O'Brien, John McGarren, very directly. Very unpleasantly, right? So I'm not, I'm not romanticizing this or saying this was wonderful to have your books uh, burned as Edna O'Brien did or to be fired from your job as, as John McGowan was as a teacher, you know, for, for having his book banned. So it, it, the, the cost for the writers was, was very significant, but the freedom, the intellectual freedom, the artistic freedom uh, actually was tied up with the fact that there was no point in trying to be an official Irish artist um, because they just weren't interested and if they were interested they were only interested in what you might be doing wrong and how it could be stopped. Uh, one might say in fact that, that one of the paradoxes of the Irish state is that uh, for you know the way I've just been talking about it, it was it was set up in, in many ways as a, an imaginative enterprise, very deeply influenced by, by its artists. And yet when the state was founded, um, its, its, its interest in uh, art, in, in writing, in theatre, uh, became almost entirely only a censorious interest. Right? So the only thing it was really interested in doing was, was controlling this stuff. <laughs> Uh, and beyond that, actually had no real interest in a cultural project. Um, one of the strangest things about Ireland is that for, a, you know, for an independent country, uh, which was founded on the idea that we should be independent, why? Because we are culturally different, we have a different imagination. Uh, you then find a complete, almost a complete lack of artistic infrastructure, of investment, of, of care for the production of any kind of, of independent art in the country. Um, so, but even by the 1980s, this was still pretty much the case. You know, obviously you had, by then you had the Arts Council, you had public subsidy for the theatres like the Abbey and the Gate, and, and you know, like Druid coming along with small amounts of public subsidy. But in general, the culture was still one that was um, officially um, indifference, it had been hostile and, and it, that, that hostility had lapsed into indifference. And none of this is pleasant for, for writers or for artists, it made it very difficult for them to make a living. However, um, it, it did mean that perhaps Ireland gave you a slightly false impression of what the relationship between art and, and politics could be, or writing and politics could be. Because what you got in Ireland was in spite of the state's hostility or indifference, you got an extraordinary freedom. So the connection between writing and politics in the Ireland in the 20th century uh, was one in which because the state, um, you know, it was interested in censoring writers, but they could still publish elsewhere. You know, I'm not saying this was at all problematic, it was very difficult. Um, and then it was largely indifference. There were no official artists. There wasn't, it wasn't like the Soviet Union, right, where you had, you know, official writers' unions. You had official intellectuals, official critics who said, this is the way it must be. 
And if you fall outside of this, then of course the, 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 the price wasn't just being censored, it was being imprisoned, um, potentially being killed. So perhaps the, 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 in the Irish case, um, the, there, there may be a connection between politics and writing, uh, which oddly and paradoxically seems more benign than it might seem in, in, in other cases. Um, almost nobody was locked up for writing. You could say people were exiled for writing, um, and, and that was true. Um, by the 1980s, it had largely ceased to be true. Uh, what you had was, a, was neglect, indifference, um, uh, but, but to a very large extent, um, by the 80s, most, most writers were able to write what they wanted to write, um, and yet were able still to maintain the sense that they were political creatures, that they had a stake and a role within the society, that they mattered, that they had a voice. So there was some kind of rough balance had, had emerged between the, the, the two fields, uh, and it allowed writing to be a critical force for change. So um, there's no question but that the, the, the large bulk of the writing that we were seeing on stage or reading in novels and short stories uh, throughout all of that period was, was antagonistic to church and state, uh, was raising really fundamental questions about, about gender, about the family, uh, about the treatment of children, you know. It, in fact, one could say that writing was probably the, the key arena in which those questions were being asked, much more than journalism, for example. Um, that's not to say that there were not journalistic um, journalistic work being done or you know things like the late late show beginning on television but you 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 had if you really wanted to get a, get to grips with the psychological realities of the place uh, it was in the imaginative writing that you found it um and so for something like me if you were if you were writing about the politics of the place and you were going to see plays in the abbey they did not feel like fundamentally different enterprises right you know they were they were part of the same uh, broad Discourse, I suppose, and 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 it was enormously energizing if you were going to write newspaper columns about politics to be also looking at what the what what playwrights were doing, what the novels were doing, what the short story writers were doing, even what the poets were doing, um, because they were they were they were doing the job in many ways that that good journalism should also do, right? which is to try to get behind the official imagery. Uh, and, and to begin to try to understand how people's lives were actually unfolding. Um, now, when I say that's relatively benign, of course, what I mean is that, uh, you know, so this is where John Banville's objections would come in, you know, which is, this is dangerous stuff, right? Um, because the question, the critical question then is, if you get used to this, uh, do you create false expectations and does it become, in a way, kind of imperative, right? Do you... Do you start saying, well, actually, hold on, if you're not doing this job, if you're not somehow helping to define and sustain and challenge the imagined community of the nation, are you any good? <laughs> uh, are you somehow um, simply self-indulgent? 
uh, and I, I, looking back on a lot of my own work, I suppose I had a tendency in that direction. Right? So if the expectation is that this, this stuff should be connecting in that immediate visceral way, um, what about the stuff that isn't interested in doing that? Do writers not have a perfect right to be, um, you know, to, to be free of that burden of expectation? Um, so, uh, I suppose, um, I, I, one of the challenges for me in terms of trying to write with, uh, about this writing was to try to understand for myself um, where were those levels of freedom? You know, how, how could you appreciate work uh, in, at different levels and in different ways without necessarily kind of imposing on this, this duty to be political. Um, and uh, I suppose in particular uh, it, it, it's, it's become a lot more relevant in fact uh, but one of the things I, I would obviously have been conscious of was that of course the the traffic is both ways, right? So we always think about the pressure of politics on writing. Um, there's also the pressure of writing on politics, you know, um, and the pressure of drama on politics in particular. You know, so one of the things we've seen over the last ten years in particular is, uh, of course, the creation of a politics in which um, the distinction between fiction and reality has been abolished. Right? So one of the things one would have said in a sort of naive, in liberal democratic way was, well, artists are allowed to lie. That's what they do. They make stuff up. Uh, and they make stuff up in the service of a larger truth. Right? So they, they, they invent in order to explore and in order to reveal. But politicians are not allowed to do that. Um, so it, 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 wearing my other hat or, you know, or functioning in that other way, although I never really thought these things as different as I said, but if you were writing about, uh, about political events, um, one of the assumptions, and it, it, it really would have been true for probably uh, most of the time I've been writing, and, and has ceased to be so, um, was that the, the sort of basic journalistic idea of unmasking. Right? So the, the, the art, the writing, is about masking, it's about playing. Uh, the journalism was supposed to be about unmasking, right? So, so the basic assumption of journalism is they're all scoundrels. Um, uh, but you have to pin down exactly in what way are they being scoundrels right now. And if you do that, it's powerful, right? It, 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 so your own use of language, in a sense, your own ability somehow to, in some much more modest way, but do what the artists are doing, right? So, so you know, what I continually learned from the great playwrights or from the great novelists or the great poets that, that I was reading um, is that writing is is all detail, right? So, so you know, the, 
The difference between bad writing and good writing is specificity. Bad writing, bad art, uh, is is abstract in the worst sense. I mean, you know, I don't mean abstract in the sense that whether an abstract painting can be abstract because that's, it's abstract in a very specific way. It makes marks that are really direct and, and, and powerful. But bad art is 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 vapid. Right? It, it 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 lacks specificity, detail. Why is this thing being said right now precisely like this and not like that? Why is this happening and not the other thing? Why is that mark being made right there on that canvas rather than somewhere else? The, 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 the sense of purpose, the sense of the, 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 the particularity is really what defines art. And the thing that you would have hoped to absorb as, as a journalist or somebody writing about public affairs right, is, is exactly that, right? which is um, what is, what is the, the telling detail in what's going on right now? Uh, the, the assumption in journalism is you're surrounded by very large-scale efforts at, um, at, at distraction, you know, to look over here, don't look there, uh, and at, at obfuscation, right? So, so um, you know, political language, the language of politics is a, is, is a language of avoidance and evasion. Don't think about the fact that there are, you know, four thousand children homeless right now in Ireland. You know, that's not that's not. It's only a detail. It's not an important one. You know, the important one is we're going to build, you know, lots of houses in the future. It's all going to be great. You know, that that's that gesture is kind of central to the way politics works. And so, your idea of of journalism is very much: could you, in some modest way, do what artists do, right? Which is to actually find the right detail. You know. To say, well, no, actually, you're lying about that, and I know why you're lying about that because this is the reality, and I can show why it's the reality. Um, this use of language, you know, you could actually use in a way the techniques of literary criticism to say this: this language is bogus, and if the language is bogus, therefore you're hiding something. And if I can, if I can show what it is you're hiding, this is somehow effective. It, it changes things. Um, and this is the sort of myth of unmasking, I suppose, that would have. Um, dominated a lot of the way that I would have uh, thought about what, what journalism did. Uh, what's changed, and, and it, it's not entirely new, but there's a phrase that's always been quite haunting for me, which is a phrase of Walter Benjamin, the great um, German intellectual, uh, who of course was writing under the pressure of the emergence of Nazism. Uh, uh, and and Be Benjamin uh, defined fascism as the aestheticization of politics. Right? So fascism is what you get when politics is conducted as if it were art. And that's a very disturbing kind of phrase because you think, well, art is wonderful, art is beautiful, art is, you know, the imagination. How could it be bad if politics was, was conducted as if it were art? Well, of course, what Benjamin was thinking about was, was the eruption of spectacle, you know, the politics of spectacle, uh, which he was seeing, of course, literally being done by globals, being done in, in the public square, you know, taking, up, taking over the public square, um, making politics into a spectacular drama, um, scripted, choreographed, lit, filmed, 
in, in, in ways that were um, not just persuasive, but of course coercive. Um, and that, I suppose, was the, this is where I suppose I, you know, come back to John Bandle's scepticism about politics, you know, the, 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 and it's, Carlos O'Brien had written about that very well, about the dangerous ground, you know, it is dangerous ground, in fact. So, it's dangerous if politics erupts too much into the field of, of, of imaginative writing, uh, because it, it, it becomes coercive. It becomes censorious. Uh, it, it limits the necessary freedom of, of, of artistic creation. But it's perhaps even more dangerous if the artistic moves in the other direction. Um, because, of course, what, what happens when uh, uh, politics becomes aesthetic um, is that it becomes not good art, but really, really bad art. Um, it, it, it becomes art that, that instead of seeking some kind of revelation of reality, uh, of course, seeks to steamroller ideas of the real, to create a parallel discourse in which reality has no, uh, no it just has no bearing, just doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, and in fact, if it, it matters only to the extent to which it, 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 it must be crushed and, and removed and obfuscated. Um, and the, uh, what happens, of course, is the, the, the energy of invention in art becomes the energy of lying in politics. Uh, and gradually, over the last, well, last decade, particular, I suppose, gathering pace over the last five years, we've seen the aestheticization of politics. We've seen it in, in, in um, I suppose, it, it's, it began in a way that seemed relatively harmless uh, in, in the 1990s, which was uh, with the sort of emergence of the very tightly controlled scripting of democratic politics. Right? So even, you know, relatively benign democratic politicians being controlled, being um, choreographed in terms of how they looked, what they wore, what they said, when they said it. Uh, you know, the, 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 that sort of apparatus of management of, of politics. That was coming from America originally in the, in the 1960s. Um, you know, that, that great moment that was kind of seared into every Western politician's head, you know, which was the, 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 the television debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, you know, where Nixon was widely believed, it may be mythic, but widely believed to have lost the debate because he sweated uh, and he had five o'clock shadow and he looked dodgy. You know, it wasn't anything to do with content. It was to do with how these two men looked, how they, how, you know, how, how they came across on television, how the aesthetic image shaped the way in which people thought about them. And so gradually, of course, you got in democratic politics, you got, you got this kind of aestheticization. You got the sense that, uh, you know, what we must concentrate on or be made to concentrate on was, was the, uh, the, the ability of the politician to, to deliver a very, very controlled scripted message. Um, the, 
if you, if you remember in the you know in political discourse, one of the worst things you could say about a politician then in the 19, by the nineteen nineties was they'd gone off script. You know, uh, kind of acknowledging in a way that this was a kind of bastardized, corrupted form of drama that that was just what we were supposed to see. And it probably seemed relatively harmless. I mean, dull, um, managerial. You know, it was people like Tony Blair with a lovely smile, and it was Bill Clinton, and you know. Uh, but of course, what it what it created was uh, a, a, a an opening really for within democratic politics. So not not from fascism or communism, but within democratic politics itself, the idea well, if it's all scripted, then its relationship to reality is entirely irrelevant. Um, the the idea that there is a connection between how somebody behaves as a person politically, uh, who, who they are, how they relate to people, uh, that, that there's a connection between that and what they would actually do, how they would use power, is, is broken. And so you get then the possibility of people like Boris Johnson and, and, and Donald Trump, who are, in a sense, entirely aesthetic figures. They're, you know, they're, they're horribly aesthetic, but they're bad art, but they, they come out of the field of writing and drama. Right? So Trump is a character, remember, in a scripted so-called, I mean, the very notion, of course, of reality TV, meaning unreality, you know, is, is part of this, but, you know, so Trump is a, is, is a guy who plays a mogul in a scripted TV reality drama called The Apprentice. That's how the vast majority of Americans know him. You know, in New York, people knew him as a not particularly successful property developer who didn't pay his bills, but in most of America, where people actually vote for him, they know him through uh, the, the, the TV drama. And Johnson, of course, comes from um, the worlds of journalism, um, newspaper column writing, I mean, to trust anybody who writes newspaper column is a terrible mistake. Um, and also, uh, of course, from, from, from TV, you know, what, what Johnson's big breakthrough as a public figure is, have I got news for you? Uh, you know, the, the, the figure, and remember, his name is not Boris, right? His name is Alex, you know? Uh, but, you know, the kind of genius of creating a character called Boris, you know? It, 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 he is himself kind of scripting this figure, the buffoon figure, the likable buffoon, the person who can get away with saying anything, who therefore can both operate as a politician, having real effects on people, but also claim, in a way, the privileges of art, which is, oh, come on, surely you get the fact that I'm, I'm being funny here, I'm, you know, I'm operating on different levels, uh, you know, you're, you're reading me literally, whereas I'm not really a literal figure. Uh, and of course, one of the smartest things said about Trump was that his his supporters um, take him seriously, but not literally, uh, while his opponents t take him take him well at, at the beginning took him took him literally and not seriously. Uh, so, and these are the techniques of art, the techniques of drama being being applied to the creation of politics. So. Um, that's that's the danger on the one side, right? Which is which has grown uh, and and become really absolutely central to where we are now. Uh, and on the other side, I I still hold to the notion that um, that that 
drama, fiction, art is is critical to the maintenance and sustaining of a political community. Um, it, it, it would be comfortable in a way to respond to the bad aestheticization of politics that we're seeing at the moment to turn back and say, well, you know, let's, let's just go back to a kind of managerial politics, a bureaucratic politics, a politics of where, you know, people who are good at this sort of thing do it. Um, we know that that failed. We, we know that it was unsustainable. So w w where I, I come back and, and uh, where my thinking about this lies, I suppose, is that we, we always have to go back and remind ourselves why imaginative writing is at the heart of political community. Um, and of course, the, you know, the, the thing we all think about in relation to this is, is, is classical Greece. We think about the, you know, the, the, the architecture of the polis, the city, you know, with, with the, the, the political space and the theatrical space, I mean, literally next to each other as, as, as almost equal uh, parts of holding open the idea of, of, of what the, the shared community might be. Um, we can't go back there, clearly. We don't live in um, societies that are visible to each other and, 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 and to themselves in the way that uh, the ancient Greek cities were. But what, what we can just remind ourselves of is that, um, uh, that, that imaginative writing does four things that are absolutely crucial to the possibility and the maintenance of a civilised political society. The first of these is, I think they're all C words, I think actually, but the first of these is about cliché. Right? Um, one of the things we know from our experience right, is that, that, that bad politics depend on cliché. Um, they depend on a, an, an atrophy of language. Um, you know, make America great again, get Brexit done, you know, take back control. You know. but, but also underlying that atrophy of language is, of course, also an atrophy of human sympathy. Right? So, um, the, the essential connection that imaginative writers make for us is that if you let the language die, if you let it uh, curdle up into cliché, um, it becomes easier and easier to stereotype people. Right? And it's not just thinking about, you know, well, if, where they burn the books, they'll be burning people next, although that's of course true. Um, but I think at a deeper level, it's, it's true that if we, if we disable our capacity to have uh, language that is open and subtle and, and tolerant, and, and capable of um, uh, the, the sort of energy that language should bring to us. Because language is the fundamental human condition of, of shared convention, that's all it is. You know? uh, once we begin to lose that shared notion of language, when language can be uh, frozen into these postures, uh, it, it is 
deeply dangerous to democracy. So, in that sense, one of the things we can say is that imaginative writers do do their work fundamentally by um, being enemies of cliché. Right? You know that. that um, and again, we know this ourselves, just as as members of an audience or as readers. You know, um, it, cliche is bad art, right? It's 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 dull. It it doesn't do anything for us. Um, what's exciting, what's interesting, is is our sense that uh, language is being put under pressure, is being changed, is being uh, challenged, is being made new. And that's not just an aesthetic pleasure, although it is. But in that aesthetic pleasure, it's also um, an inoculation against the power of cliché. The second thing I think um, that imaginative writing does for us that has profound political consequence um, is, is conflict. You know, most certainly drama, but also in most, most good prose writing, um, is implicitly conflictual, right? It, it, it deals with conflict. And it deals with conflict um, in, in, in the most profound ways, right? It, it brings us right into an imaginative sense of what it's like to be in situations where there are fundamental disagreements about how to live, how to behave. Um, and in that sense, too, um, I suppose this is going back to the experience of looking at all those great plays, for example, in, 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 in the Irish tradition. Um, there's something fundamentally healthy about the capacity that art has, or imaginative writing has, to, as it were, project conflict. Uh, uh, you know, nobody actually gets killed. Um, on stage, nobody actually dies from watching a play. Nobody dies from reading a novel, um, and this, I'm reluctant to say they're safe spaces because safety is not the feeling we're after. Actually, it's more or less a feeling of danger. But it's 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 the paradox of art, of good art, that it 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 creates the conditions of danger without the danger. Right? It 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 it's literally not um, lethal, but it raises for us that very profound sense uh, that, uh, that, that, that conflict is playing out. Um, Tom Murphy, um, I'm sure he probably said the same thing to Nicky, but when I was working as a critic, Tom said to me the smartest thing, that I, and I always held on to it, you know, he said the most important question to ask about a play is, what is at stake? You know, and that, I think, is... I could have spared you the last hour and just said that's the question of like Smith, right? We know which is the in good imaginative writing there's there's a lot at stake. Even though in, in principle there's nothing at stake, right? We're not, you know, as I said, we you know, we we'll, we'll, we'll go home at the end of the night and, and, and um, life will go on, but there's an enormous amount at stake imaginatively. And what's at stake is 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 our ability to process conflict, to think about it, to experience it, um, and, and not to be overwhelmed by it. Um, the, the third big thing I think that, that um, imaginative writing does for us is, is, um, is it, well, obviously, but it's, it's, it's compassion. 
know, um, art remains the most fundamental experience because it's the only experience in which we get to experience the world as somebody else does. Uh, again, we don't, we don't actually do this, you know, we're not literally um, in the minds of Leopold Bloom or of, of uh, uh, one of Ben O'Brien's girls or of, of, of um, a farmer in the west of Ireland or written by John McGahorn or a Greek king or Macbeth, but we feel like we are. You know, the, while we are in that zone of concentration, our, um, our experience is in a sense being taken over by somebody else's experience, by the writer's experience as, as they are filtering through through their characters. And then, you know, we often then forget that bit and we, it's just the experience of the characters. We are, we are seeing the world as somebody else sees it. And remember, we don't get to do this in any other circumstance of our lives, even in the most intimate ones, you know. I mean, even somebody that you love very deeply and you spend all your life with, you will never fully see the world as they see it. And you would hope not, actually, because it might not be very flattering to yourself. Um, but, you know, th th there's, there's always that zone of, of, of the unknown in our relationships with other people. I mean, wh where else do you get to know what's really going on in somebody else's head? Right? Um, you, 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 you get it in imaginative writing because that's what the writers do. They tell you. They don't just tell you. They, they, you know, they, they, they make it happen in front of you. Um, and this is a, 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 a more than ever is a, is a is a critical experience, right? Because the way in which the culture is being shaped is is increasingly one in which we we are not to be permitted to understand the world from the point of view of other people. Uh, we're subjected to other people's views. We're we're subjected to kind of tribalizing notions of us and them, but we're not actually uh, invited to see the world as other people see it. And if you can't do that, you can't have democracy. You, you actually cannot function as a civilized democratic society unless you can experience the world as, as other people do. And the last aspect of this, I think that's, that's utterly critical, is uh, the the experience of complexity. Um, I mean, why do we read novels? Why do we read poems? Why do we go to plays? We go to experience in, or we read to experience in a concentrated way the sheer complexity of what it's like to be human. Uh, great writing. Um, is is uh, not, and this is, I suppose, a corrective to overly simplistic ideas of the political role of art. Right? Um, if art is just simply telling you what to think, um, it's 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 no good as art probably, and it's also no good as politics. What what it does more is tell you how to think, how to feel, and and does that in a way which is which is deeply challenging because, and this relates back to the thing about seeing other things from other people's points of view, of course, which is that in most writing, the points of view shift. Uh, 
um, you know, why is Shakespeare so exhilarating but also so terrifying, which is that there's no fixed point of view. You can't get hold of, you know, whose side am I supposed to be on right now? <laughs> you know, and I remember, deeply remember the business of, at 13, going to see Macbeth, which was played by the wonderful Ray McAnally, um, one of the great Irish actors. And I was being really terrified at the end of it because I knew this man was a monster. You know, you, you've seen, you've seen the, you know, the, the butchery of the child. You've seen, you know, the horrible stuff that he's done. And you, you know, like, a, you, you, you know, the, the part of your brain is just waiting for someone to come along and kill him. And then he's, you know, he's, he's, he's doing, you know, those great soliloquies and, and you're really on his side, you know, and you're, you're moved by him and you're, you're drawn completely into his world and his, his emotions and how he's, how he's expressing himself in language. And that, that's an absolutely necessary experience for democracy as well and for, 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 for the existence of some kind of civilized political community. Um, we're not required in democracy to agree with other people. Um, we are required to accept that they're human um, and, and that there might be reasons why they think what they think or say what they, what they say, that their experiences might not be our experiences and that that does not uh, prima facie invalidate them. You know? The acceptance of the validity of other people's experience is, is really at the heart of the possibility of any kind of civilized democratic society. Because once you remove that, then of course it becomes incredibly easy to dehumanize people, to delegitimize them. And once you do that, what we know is that there's not much limit then to what you can do to them. Um, they, you know, we, we've seen, when you see um, the images that Trump has produced, for example, for us of babies in cages. I mean, t taking kids, you know, who, whose crime is to try to cross the border, putting them in cages, and then you can get people to go on Fox News and uh, and people like Laura Ingram, for instance, going on saying those kids aren't really crying. You know, they're just they're actors. They're, they're, they've been taught to do this. They don't feel like the way we feel. You know, you, we're looking at it as if they were like us, but they're not like us. This is this is happening. In front, this is happening right now, right? This is the discourse that you get. Um, that dehumanizing, of course, is impossible, and and we know from from good writing, good drama. I mean, once you start telling us the story from the point of view of the migrant or the child, it's a whole different story. It 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 disturbs us. It forces us to think about about people's experiences. Um, and, and to validate those experiences, to understand them as having the same kind of emotional depth, the same kind of extraordinary uh, complexity uh, that we, we, we think of with ourselves. Um, so I think those are the reasons why, in the end, um, it's not really a question of whether um, imaginative writing is political. Um, for me, it's the question of a politics that is not profoundly shaped by the forces that are at work in imaginative writing is going to be a bad politics. Thanks very much.